Hello, everybody, and welcome to Over the Hump, the podcast that aims to provide you with a dose of midweek motivation to finish your week off strong. I'm your host, Corey McGowan, and this is episode 25, Leveraging Your Curiosity. This week, I'm joined by David McCann. David works in behavioral science and has fueled his journey through feeding his curiosity and upskilling himself throughout his career. He's leveraged his surroundings and pushed himself to become the entrepreneur that he is today. Join us as David shares his journey, insights, and a few great reads. Enjoy. All right. Uh, Thank you for joining us this week, everyone. Uh, Welcome to another episode of Over the Hump. Today, we've got a uh, very special guest joining us from the other side of the world, uh, David McCann. Uh, David, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Corey. I'm glad to be here. Uh, you and I have had an opportunity to chat a little bit, uh, to get to know one another, and I do not want to do the disservice of missing uh, any points on what you truly do. So please introduce yourself to the podcast and tell us a little bit about yourself. So it's pretty easy to explain my story. I think I'm a, I'm a small town boy. I'm from a small little corner of Ottawa called Nepean, and I have through a very long journey, which we'll get into, landed here in Bangkok, Thailand. Actually, I landed here uh, just before the lockdown hit the whole world. So it's been an interesting start to this country. But I run a behavioral science practice. It's very simple to explain. It might sound kind of, kind of, kind of fancy, but really, what I do is I help businesses change behavior of customers and employees. That's wow. what I do for a living. I, uh, that is a lot to, uh, undertake, especially when you think of the size of, of, of business practices, corporations. So that's uh, a lot of work on your end. It sounds, um, it can be, and I, I've certainly made the mistake of taking on more of that work than, than I probably needed to have done, but because I've largely learned how to do this on my own, um, it's very much been a process of trial and error. Uh, I would say one thing I've learned is when you're running this kind of, um, we'll call it um, way of changing things, it's very important to have the people that you're working with own as much of the change as they can. So if they don't, then the facilitator winds up doing way more work and gets less buy-in and usually less creative or effective solutions. I hear you loud and clear. Um, so you and I have also impacted your journey a little bit, and I'd love for you to share it with our listeners. Well, I mean, here's, here's I think, again, with that, it's been very much a, a, a process of trial and error. Like, I'll tell you a little bit about how I got to where I am. I was a banker. I I started as a a financial planner in Ottawa and I worked in Toronto for maybe another eight or nine years uh, in various different departments and various different projects. So I learned a great deal about how people make decisions, especially decisions that involve uncertainty or, or risk. And I think I had a really good clutch of managers and and really great peers that I worked with that taught me, I would say, the essence of what I now do, or at least how it actually rolls out when you do it in, in a big company. But what had happened was uh, shortly after my wife and I got married, 
uh, Rupali had, had moved back to Bangalore. And so for the first, call it uh, three, three and a half years of our marriage, we were, we were actually kind of commuting between Bangalore and Toronto. So I went over there for eight months and then came back and did a project. And when we finally decided that, okay, we're, we're not going to stay in Canada, we're going to start our, our, our globe trotting adventure. I landed in Bangalore without really much of a plan. All that had really happened is I would say shortly after getting married, uh, I, be, I, I would say I rediscovered my love of reading and I just started powering through what turned out to be a book a week. It, it took a little while to get up to that pace, but I'd been reading a book a week for a couple of years. I landed in Bangalore with all these crazy ideas and said, okay, uh, what do I do now? Do I, do I get a job? So I took a month when I first landed just to be and, and, and sort of didn't feel what my new home was going to be. But mostly what I did is I just made friends. I, I, went to, I went out to meet people that I thought were interesting for coffee or a drink or, or a meal. And we talked about what they did and we talked about where they came from. And I just got to know them as people. And then we began to explore where I could add value. And that's pretty well how this happened. So I would get into these environments with, with friends and, and quite often it was uh, because Bangalore is kind of India's startup capital, it, it, it quite often was a software startup. And more often than not, it was a software startup that had global ambitions, which meant, you know, how do I sell things to Americans? Because nerdy stat to throw in here. Uh, at that point, about 65, 60, 60, 63% of global enterprise software sales are, are actually in the US. So the Americans buy pretty well what everybody else in the world has to sell. And so what that meant was the Canadian boy with the accent that sounds like an American to non North American people got roped into helping startups with their global expansion projects. And this was when I began to see in, in, in truth, what it means to have two cultures work together. And this just expanded my curiosity and I started to double down and triple down on, on what makes us different and, and what, where are we the same and how is it that we can work better together? Like it's not, it can't be that complicated. We do it in Toronto and New York and London and all the big cities of the world. But what is it that makes us a little bit different and how can I help bridge that divide? And I just went, just, I, I would say, I just was a dog with a bone. I just needed to know why we did what we did and how we made decisions and why Bangaloreans behaved differently from Mumbaikers, sorry, people from Mumbai. Uh, and that's, that's sort of the, the foundation of, of why I do what I do now. I just want to understand people better. I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. You started <laughs> a banker. Uh, now, now you've moved into essentially, you know, understanding human behavior. And I didn't hear the, the word university, college, this seems like all uh, skills that, you know, you've, you've upskilled yourself. Well, hang on, there, there is some, I do have some academic underpinning in this. So I have a, my background is in finance. And there's a great deal of, uh, it's called behavioral economics and psychology and uh, a few other 
more quantitative type courses that all kind of marry together. And those form the underpinnings of behavioral science. So I, I do have a good solid academic background in human decision making, but it started specifically within the universe of financial services. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, when, when I think about, you know, what, what we've just unpacked here, like your curiosity is something that uh, sparks you to, to read a book a week, which by the way, is quite admirable. The, the fact that you're reading and, and, and continuing to challenge, you know, your knowledge bank is, is truly fantastic. Um, but to, to circle back for a second here, you know, you, you had mentioned that you, you spent some time in India to kind of unpack and get to understand yourself a little bit better, um, you know, reading uh, quite a bit more. And, you know, I would attribute that to, you know, kind of finding yourself. And you and I spoke about this before. How important was that to you? Um, and, and really, you know, what kind of was your key learning about yourself that you didn't know before when you made this transition, moving across the world, changing a, a essentially careers and, and, and reestablishing your life? You know, it was, it was odd. Um, one side of the coin, India is an incredibly densely populated country. It's difficult to find a quiet corner to be by yourself. And what I learned in those early days was I actually needed that quiet corner. I very much needed to have a small moment of peace in my day uh, in order to cope with the, the intensity that is a major Indian city. And I actually, when I, when I told you that, when I tell that story, I actually think back to when I first moved to Toronto, I actually had something similar, although uh, we'll call it a light version of that same thing. I, for the first few months I was in Toronto, I couldn't walk on Yonge Street to, in the morning to go to the subway. I actually had to go roundabout through the park to get to the subway because I needed, I needed that because people were making me crazy. So <laughs> that that's one thing I learned was hey, I needed that that calm. And what that meant was I, I had to be up before most. And India is a very young country, two thirds of the populations under the age of 35. So 20 somethings are not famed for for getting up at six, 530 in the morning. <laughs> so what I found was when I got up that early, uh, my day was great. I actually had my moment of calm and quiet where birds were chirping and, you know, squirrels were making their sounds. So on the one hand, that was one thing I discovered that was incredibly important. And that's become the basis of my routine up at 530 where my day is not so great. Um, two, a little weirdly, but I'd, I've been working in offices for most of my life. And I, I pretty quickly discovered when you're... Uh, when I was not talking to other humans, be it over the phone or face to face, I, I would get a little squirrely. I, hmm. I became a little bit less. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna say I became a little bit less me. I wasn't as confident or charming or 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 well spoken or whatever you might want. I wasn't. I just I wasn't as good. So working from home. Uh, which was what happened in those first few months, I, I discovered, you know what, I, I, I now understand why people go to the gym at two in the afternoon and go for coffee to meet somebody after I get it. 
And those were my two early learnings. Must get up in the morning before people and must speak to a human every day or I go a little bit batty. Wow. Um, you know, it's almost like a, everyone has their own sense of, of what uh, meditation is to them. And that seems to be like your calm state, you know, it's, it, it's, it's, it, it recenters you. Right. So that's incredible. Um, I will personally start working on those five thirty wake ups. I'm about an hour behind you right now. So, um, <laughs> you know, when I, when I start to think about how you've uh, established routines um, you know, I think about my own routine and my routine is up at six 30, try to get in a run, um, try to stay off the phone for at least, you know, half an hour. Um, not always successful on that one. Um, <laughs> and, and, and move forward in my day towards, towards my work day. Um, and then when you talk about your routine, you know, you, you talked about, um, how it was important for you to, to find that, that baseline. Right. And, you know, it's almost like, like that, that flow state, right? And so what have you done to establish that flow state now when, when you're you know, working from home, you're essentially an entrepreneur, you are an entrepreneur, um, and you, you've got to motivate yourself to continue moving in that Northeast direction? Well, listen, I think I've learned enough about the rhythms that most of us have to have learned that there are times of the day when I'm better at certain tasks than others. So typically one of the reasons, well, not typically, but listen, one of the reasons why I, I have persisted with the 530 in the morning thing is there are times when I'm reading some very dense stuff, uh, reading sometimes the, let's just say, the ability of a scientist to explain their experiment, let's just say that their skill level in that explanation varies. And honestly, there are times when I'm reading something that makes me need espresso after I've had my coffee. And what I found was, I needed to put the reading there. Some people put reading at the end of the day and are great with that, but I needed it to be there. And at the same time, I've had to learn to do a great number of new things as an entrepreneur in this space. And I found that the energy that it took to learn how to, to do things that, well, here, I'll give you an example. So quite often, if I'm working on a marketing project, I need to create things called wire wireframes. And sometimes I even need to create the finished product. And I'll tell you, I don't draw. I was not that kid in school that did cartoons. Uh, like you can ask anybody that knew me back then. I am not a good artist and I'm still not a great artist today. But I've, I've learned that there are a variety of tools that are available to me that make it so that I can make a professional quality output. But that takes me 10 times more effort than it then would a, a proper designer. And I can tell you if I try to do a really creative task like that, like whether it's drawing or making a video or, or even even writing a piece. So I do I do a fair amount of thought leadership in that space too. like I write a lot of articles for people. Um, that takes a lot out of me. That is not a natural skill for me. So that stuff has to be in the morning for me. And so what I learned is wherever possible, 
put the things that do come naturally to me in the times of day when I'm not particularly high energy. For example, I love putting meetings right after lunch. Listen, I, I love to talk to people. It, it doesn't take any energy. It actually recharges me to do it. Um, so I try to put meetings and phone calls in the afternoon so that I can have, you know, my best self for creating content and, and working on new challenging things. That it's, uh, seems like a recipe for success and you've, uh, you've established that, uh, that routine in, in such a, a fantastic way that works for you. And, you know, I think all of us have a routine that, um, would, we would consider optimal and, and it's just a matter of focusing and being very mindful of things such as, um, you know, your meetings after lunch, you, you know, you're, you need that recharging moment and that's when you're going to get it. So you, you've, you've tapped into that. So kudos to you. Um, I would be remiss to not mention the book nudge. Uh, you and I have been speaking about nudge. Uh, Chris has referenced nudge. Um, and we left it out of your journey, but it's played a pretty important role in, in where you are right now on the other side of the world. So, you know, how did, uh, how did you come across the book? Do you, do you recall why you read the book? I do. So I was working on a, a pilot project at, uh, at my company. It was with, when I was working for Scotiabank in Toronto. And I was just learning about this uh, type of survey methodology. It's called Net Promoter Score. You've probably seen it. If you've ever had to answer a, how likely are you to recommend on a 0 to 10 scale or 1 to 10 scale, that's Net Promoter Score. So it was around that time that uh, I began to explore this world that's called customer experience. And it was in and around that same, uh, that same window of time that I started to come across people like Daniel Kahneman, who won a Nobel Prize in behavioral science. Uh, so I, I did pick up his book, which is called Thinking Fast and Slow. For any of you who have not read that book, it's, it's again, one of those have a coffee hand nearby when you do read it, but it's a fantastic book. Nudge is more accessible, I guess. But the the guys that 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 wrote that book, uh, honestly, are incredible storytellers. And when I read it, no pun intended, I got hooked. I said, Oh, my God, this this is what I need. This is the answer to the question. Why do we behave differently? Or why do we not always make choices that are in our best interest? Why are some of us fat? Why do some of us smoke and not and not give up, etc, etc, etc. And it was from there, I think, uh, I think a friend of mine recommended the book to me, he was, uh, he was telling me about a consultant that, uh, that had approached him with a with a solution. And I think that was why I ended up picking it up. But it, it really got me started. And I think that's where, where a lot of the behavioral science community got started, in fact. So small digression, as it happened, I, I felt a bit better about, the, about myself when I read this, but apparently 65% of behavioral science, people that practice behavioral science today are people like me. They're, they're not PhDs. They don't have advanced degrees in it. They're just people who are in business who had risen to some level of, of project management or where they had influence over culture or productivity, uh, or even in some cases, technology transformations. And they said, well, why did people behave that way? And so 
I, I felt a bit better about my own journey that, okay, this is how many of us are, are getting to this stage. Cool. I'm not this weirdo that fell into this trap, but I think to, to answer in, in as brief a way as I can about what nudge is, um, nudging plays on a variety of contextual factors that influence our decisions in a variety of different ways. So I think one of my, one of my stories I like to talk about with nudge is, is actually, um, if I could, it's a, a financial product. So let's, let's go a little bit more Canadian on the example. So there's a, a, a Scotiabank ad that's burned into my brain. Uh, you would have seen it when you went down to a movie. At the beginning of the ad, there was a, a, a pink piggy bank on a white background that had a bunch of popcorn it pop out of it right at the beginning. And it was called Bank the Rest. So here, here's sort of the, the, the story behind that product. Once upon a time, there, uh, there was this thing that would be uh, probably sitting somewhere in the living room or in the kitchen or wherever your parents would have come in and, and taken the change out of their pocket and dumped, there would have been a, a tin of some kind that had a bunch of coins in it. Oh yeah. And standard workday stuff, right? Like you go down and mom and dad would have maybe bought a coffee and a sandwich. And then at the end of the day, they would have broken the 20 they had and they had, you know, some pennies and nickels and quarters. They would toss it in. And then over the course of the year, that money would stack up and stack up and stack up. And eventually, at least this is what happened when I was a kid. I don't know about you, Corey, but uh, my mom would sit down with us with a bunch of these little rollers that she would have gotten from the dollar store. And we would have put them all together and put a little elastics around them. It would have been a little game that we had with mom. Thing is, until a few years ago, Canada had been one of the leaders in digital payments or cashless payments, Interact. And what that meant was there's a huge swath of the population who were younger than me, who may not have that experience anymore, certainly not as adults. And what, what we realized was, hey, wait, could we replicate that digitally? Could we introduce a, a, a type of product that would work like that? And so this is where Bank the Rest came in. So Bank the Rest would work like this. Every time you would go and you would buy your coffee, let's say you went down to Timmy's and spent a buck 20. I have no idea how much double double is anymore, but we'll call it a buck 20. Um, the, there would be a, when you open the bank account, there would be a, a question. Do you want to have a savings account? And do you want that savings account to use this bank the rest? What we'll do is we'll round up your transaction to the nearest dollar and we'll move that to a savings account. Do you want that? Yes or no? Most would, most took it, majority of people actually took it, new bank account holders. And what that actually did was, was it, it ended up putting a, on average $180 into the average middle-class Canadians savings account over the course of a year, if they were using their, their card like that. And just like the piggy bank where you had to sit down with mom for an hour or two and roll all those coins, we also, wanted to introduce a small little friction. We wanted to make it a little hard. And so in the early days of this program, this was before mobile banking was big. If you wanted to get access to the money, you could just 
hit savings at the machine at the, at the point of sale, but we charge you five bucks, mm -hmm. which sucks. Nobody wants to pay that unless you went to the bank machine and you put your card in and you said, I want to a do a transfer. And then I want to go hit other, and then I want to hit savings, and then I'll move it to my checking account, and then I can withdraw it for free. That was the digital equivalent of rolling all of the coins and making it hard. So this is a financial nudge. What we were doing here is we introduced a friction to make something hard. And by doing that, we helped Canadians do what they said they wanted to do anyway. They just sucked at doing. They sucked at saving money. And by the way, this this is hold, held true everywhere I've been in the world now. The Thai suck at saving money. Indians suck at saving money, at least young Indians. But this put over five years, hundreds of millions of dollars into the bank's savings accounts that wouldn't otherwise have been there. You know, banks make money off that. So it became win-win for everybody. And all we did was we said, can I make savings so easy you don't think about it? And can I make it annoying for you to get your money out for without charge? $180 per year into the average Canadian's out and average Canadian's savings account. So this is nudge, uh, at least one very small example of it. You know, thinking, considering that was from your financial time, which of course is before your, your current uh, career, um, you were kind of dabbling in uh, behaviors right from the get-go, working mm -hmm. on projects like that. And uh, I can see how your curiosity has brought you to where you are today. Uh, and for your knowledge, I do remember rolling those, uh, <laughs> those uh, quarters and nickels and dimes. Mom and I would do that uh, as well as grandma and I would do that. And I, I distinctly remember the smell of copper and nickel on my, uh, on my fingertips. So, um, you need to almost bathe those, uh, those nickels and quarters at, before you roll them. Um, okay, David, um, I think we've unpacked a, a, a tremendous amount from you and thank you for sharing, uh, so much of your journey and, and what you're working on currently. Um, but your curiosity doesn't stop today doesn't stop tomorrow. It's clearly ongoing. So how are you continuing to ignite your curiosity? How are you continuing to be productive? Um, what what uh, skills are you employing right now that, that you feel are, are very important to you and, and your success? Well, listen, I think I, I enjoy puzzles more than more than I gave myself credit for. What it, what turns out really motivates me is when somebody tells me that they have a problem and they need help executing it. That's, that's, that's the, that's the motivator right there. It's give me something to sink my teeth into. And in, in my previous career, it was, you know, help me retire, put my kid to school, pay off my house, whatever. Now the problems are maybe a little bit more um, dry, maybe because they're they're business they're business problems. But nonetheless, when someone sits down and says, "Hey, listen, I want I want my AI to do this," or "I, I want to go from a year to six months to close a new deal," or "I want my employees to collaborate better and produce 
more innovative ideas more regularly that we can take to the market. Whatever may be the problem, this is what really gets me up in the morning. Yesterday, a buddy of mine did exactly that. He gave me a problem in the morning and I couldn't help myself. I was up till midnight last night and I spent an hour just poking through notes trying to say, okay, let's try it like this. That stuff really energizes me. The trick is getting to those problems when you're in a new city or in a new job or in an, or trying to talk to people that you don't know is, well, you've been in sales. How many people do you have to talk to before you can get someone to tell you what the problem is so that you can sink your teeth into it? So for me, it's back to your motivation question. There are for salespeople and every entrepreneur is a salesperson in some capacity. There are habits that become so important. Listen, nobody likes doing cold calls. <laughs> nobody likes writing emails and saying, have I got a solution for you? <laughs> but that's what you do if you want to get to those problems. So for me, the most of the energy is that, okay, how much of this can I automate? How much of this can I make more part of my daily routine so that I don't have a few days in a row where I don't talk to people and I don't get to hear a new problem. Amazing. Amazing. Um, all right, David, well, you've brought us through our journey. You've relived, uh, you've relived your, your full journey, if you will, with us. Uh, you've talked to us about how you sparked your curiosity and how you have all these new skills because of it. Uh, but now I need to ask you one final thing. Are you ready for the lightning round? Shoot. All right. So um, don't feel that you need to answer these in the, the most abbreviated form. Please elaborate where you feel necessary. Um, but the first question is, one thing you do in the morning to set your day up for success. What do I do to set my day up for success? Uh, I'm asleep before 11. I'm up at 530. And I have designed my, my, my morning routine so that I don't think the, the, my iPad is on my coffee table. My book is sitting beside it. I have to walk by it to go make my coffee. This morning routine does not change. There's that, there's that flow. It's, it's just, uh, it's something that's so important that we find, right? That routine that works for us. So that's incredible. One word or phrase that helps you find success in work or life? Gratitude. That one I'd like you to elaborate on. I'm a, I'm a religious guy. I pray every day. Um, but what I've learned through my, my studies is one of the most powerful tools at our disposal to help us achieve a goal, you might describe this as resilience, is actually gratitude. Uh, if I had to will myself to come to my, my office every day and, and, and make those cold calls and, and make those emails, I would, I would never succeed. I would grind myself into, into misery. So what I do is I reflect on things that I'm grateful for every day. Uh, or every day, if not every day, almost every day, and certainly when I'm not feeling so happy. Um, most specifically, 
I write down what I'm grateful for. This is the, the journaling tactic. The, the concept is very simple. Um, if you want to feel an emotion, the most effective or visceral way to feel that emotion is to write it down. Mm -hmm. If you, if you write down a thing that you're grateful for, you know, I'm grateful that Corey, uh, found an hour to talk to me about my journey. Cause maybe I don't, I don't tell people and, and maybe it's, it's meaningful for me to be able to do that. Maybe, maybe what I've learned can be helpful to somebody else. And so when I write that down, I get to relive that feeling and that feeling of gratitude propels me more than willpower ever could. I mean, I, I hear you loud and clear. I think gratitude is something that is, you know, kind of undervalued, especially in today's climate. And I think there's an opportunity for us to, to certainly be grateful. I, I certainly live by that, uh, that same notion. And um, I do think that uh, the journaling tactic can really help you um, be more grateful and uh, be more reflective and self-reflective and self-aware of of um, who you are and, and where you're where you're going. So incredible, incredible answer. Um, question number three, this is a fill in the blank. Life isn't life if you're not. Hmm. Life isn't life. If I'm not useful. Amazing. Maybe that that says do I need to feel like, yeah, I do. We all need to feel like we're useful in some way. I, I can't just be a bump on a log. I need to feel useful. Well, you've said it to me before, but uh, you do the hard things because they're hard. So I, uh, I certainly uh, can understand your answer. Um, what is one habit that you'd recommend to drop immediately to improve the lives of others? Oh, a habit to drop to improve other people's lives. Okay, I haven't, I haven't fully conquered this one yet, but don't complain. Mm. Don't get me wrong. It does. It isn't like I'm saying never be critical. I think I don't, I don't maybe have the most, uh, most polished answer to this question, but Blaming externalities for, for situations is not, in my view, the best way to, to stand up tall and grow and, and, and meet your goals. So I, 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 I'm guilty of it sometimes where I maybe complain about circumstance, but that's a habit we all should drop. We can, for the most part, we, we should own up to our situations and try to improve. I 100% back you on that. I think that the minute you start putting onus on yourself and and reflecting on um, the situations at hand, whatever they may be, and you can take the 100% ownership for shortcomings or you know obviously the the latter would be success. Um, you start to feel really good about yourself, and you start to understand that you know I can do this. Um, I can learn. Um, I can spark my curiosity. I can be more hungry and more productive and be more motivated. But you do that by, by putting it inside, right? By, by reflecting back and putting it on yourself. So I hear you. That's a great answer. Bonus question. Mm. Bonus question. 
and then I will uh, let you go, of course. But uh, one book other than Nudge that you'd suggest that our listeners read now. It's called Emotional Success. He's one of my favorite authors. He's a, he's a, a, he's a professor of psychology. Uh, his name is David DeSteno. And his book, Emotional Success, uh, speaks to uh, gratitude, compassion, and pride in one of the most, I think, compelling stories I've, I've heard. And if I can close with this, I actually ended up having a really good conversation with my pastor, actually a couple of my pastors about this, uh, this exact book. So David talks about uh, willpower and he describes it in a visual that I think some people might find a bit simplistic, but he describes willpower like a, a fuel tank. Mm -hmm. Now, imagine walking by a, a table with cookies on it every day and resisting those cookies every time you walked by. Every time you do that resistance, your, your fuel tank of willpower drops a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. You may succeed in avoiding those cookies over a number of days or even over that day. But what's going to happen is you're going to maybe order a, a large blizzard or a big bowl. You're going to have a big bowl of ice cream. You're going to eat a big bag of chips or have some junk somewhere else. That's because willpower, willpower is a depletive resource. It gets refilled when you rest. So you can come back and have more willpower later. But you can't use willpower to overcome uh, a problem that persists. Let's say the example of having to do those sales calls every day, like that problem is always going to be there. So I can't use willpower for that. So what he actually talks about is uh, a story of using three emotions in an evolutionary tale, describing how we as a species ha have learned to persist and achieve our, our goals. And he describes this story, which I love to tell. It's uh, back in hunter-gatherer days. Imagine that you were the weak hunter. Now, all your hunter friends made fun of you because you, you were a bad hunter. And so one day, feeling sad and dejected, you were sitting outside your hut and you kicked some seeds into a hole and some water fell in. And sometime later, you, you noticed it, but nothing, didn't pay a lot of attention to it. Sometime later, those seeds grew into, into let's call them potatoes. And sometime later, you, you thought, huh, can I repeat that? All the while, your hunter friends are ridiculing you. And over the years, you, you learned how to make this potato plant into a crop, and you ended up with all these potatoes. And you, you looked back at, at your potatoes one day, Again, all the, all the tribesmen making fun of you for being a bad hunter and being this loser that grew potatoes. And you, 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 le you leaned back and, and looked over your crop and you were proud of what you'd accomplished. That feeling made you feel good. You, you felt a little bit taller in a small little way at what you had accomplished. And then <clears throat> sometime afterwards, the villagers' hunters had a bad season. They, they, couldn't, they couldn't get any meat. And they came to you very, very, very humbly and very sad and said, can you help us? We're all going to starve and die. And what did you do? 
you, you, you showed compassion to your tribesmen and you said, here's potatoes, eat them. But you did more than that. You, you, you were grateful that you, you were able to do that, that the small thing that you were proud of, you were able to save your village with it. So what you did was you paid it forward. You taught others how to make the potatoes grow as well. And this was the part that I, actually, I had a, a big conversation with my pastors about, because uh, we know that pride cometh before the fall. But nonetheless, these three emotions are the most powerful tools that we have to help us overcome adversity and to pursue a goal. Now, obviously very important that we know what our goal is, but once we've set it, that becomes our North Star. We use these emotions to get us there. And this forms the basis of my journaling habit. I write things when I'm able to be nice to somebody and when I'm proud of something that I did or when I'm grateful for something that someone did to me, I, I need to relive that. And it, it, it's not always big things. Like if I, rare, if I, if I share some of my little journals, like it, sometimes it's my, my wife made me some amazing meatballs. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm grateful for today because they, they were amazing. But it's, it's these things and this story, I think that really hit me. It hit me, it hit me in the right spot and at the right time, I think. So I, I've listened to everything that he's, he's ever done, uh, podcast and video, and I've read all of his books. Uh, Emotional Success is an amazing read. I love it. I recommend it highly. Okay, thank you, David, for bringing us through your journey and uh, downloading us with uh, some, some key nuggets of knowledge. I will certainly need to check out a few of the books that you've recommended today. Um, from all of us at Over the Hump, thank you. Uh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you, Corey. What a fantastic conversation David and I had. Listening to how he leverages his interests, uses his natural-born curiosity, and upskills himself is very admirable. It reminds me about how self-reflective and self-aware we need to be of our interests and our passions because they can help forge a new path within our career or our personal lives. By taking a moment to reflect and understand those interests and passions, you never know what capacity you will unlock within yourself.